This is literally everything, 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 everything. If you're like me, you have a pile of books older than your grandma's mom and taller than the Empire State Building just begging to be read. To top it off, you probably add several books to said pile every week, yet somehow find yourself in a reading slump with nothing to read. Uh Uh-huh, I see you. In an attempt to tackle my never-ending pile of books, I decided to start a podcast with hopes of making some sort of dent in said pile, and maybe help inspire your next read. I'm Odell. Welcome to Just Read It Already. Hey friends, happy Thanksgiving week for those in the United States, provided you celebrate that is. I think I say this every week, but where is the time going? I've had a crazy busy month this month, but can't believe it's already the end of November. Before you know it, we'll be ringing in the new year. Speaking of the new year, there will be some changes coming to the show and the entire Just Read It Already experience. Uh, that's a little cocky, assuming this is an experience. I don't think we'd go that far. The, the brand, maybe? You know, regardless of what we call it, these are good changes, I think, that I'm still working out. So stay tuned. I'll have more information in December. This week, I'll be sharing my thoughts on Nathan Hill's Wellness, Alex E. Harrow's Starling House, Jess Armstrong's The Curse of Penrith Hall, and Mona Awad's Rouge. But first, we're going to take a look at some of the new books that are out this week. It's a very short list, I guess, maybe because of the holiday. I don't know. But first on my list is The Ball at Versailles by Danielle Steele. She's still going strong. Four American debutantes attend a renowned Paris cotillion. For all these young women, one transcendent night will change their lives forever. Next, we have Inheritance by Nora Roberts. A tale of tragedies, love found and lost in a family haunted for generations. Inheritance is the first in the Lost Bride trilogy. Then we have The Other Half by Charlotte Vassell, or Vassell, V-A-S-S-E-L-L. Rupert's 30th birthday party is a black tie dinner at the Kentish Town McDonald's, catered with cocaine and expensive champagne. Hello. The morning after, his girlfriend Clemmy is found murdered on Hampstead Heath, a single stiletto heel jutting from under a bush. Who killed Clemmy? Next is Defiant by Brandon Sanderson. This is book four in the Skyward series about a girl who will travel beyond the stars to save the world she loves from destruction. And the last on my list, I told you it was short this week, is There Should Have Been Eight by Nalini Singh. A remote estate in New Zealand's Southern Alps hosts a reunion no one will ever forget. They met when they were teenagers. Now they're adults, and time has been kind to some and unkind to others. None more so than to B, the one they lost nine years ago. There's a nagging feeling that B's shocking death wasn't what it was claimed to be. And before the weekend is through, the truth will be unleashed, no matter the cost. Dun, dun, dun. That's all I got. So let's jump into the reviews. We'll start by taking a look at Wellness by Nathan Hill. This book was first published by Knopf on September 26th, 2023, and was Oprah's book club pick in October. It was also my book of the month selection in October. The synopsis reads, 
When Jack and Elizabeth meet as college students in the 90s, the two quickly join forces and hold on tight, each eager to claim a place in Chicago's thriving underground art scene with an appreciative kindred spirit. Fast forward 20 years to married life, and alongside the challenges of parenting, they encounter cults disguised as mindfulness support groups, polyamorous would-be suitors, Facebook wars, and something called Love Potion Number 9. For the first time, Jack and Elizabeth struggle to recognize each other, and the no longer youthful dreamers are forced to face their demons, from unfulfilled career ambitions to painful childhood memories of their own dysfunctional families. In the process, Jack and Elizabeth must undertake separate personal excavations, or risk losing the best thing in their lives, each other. Every once in a while, a book comes along that everyone raves about. The reviews are pretty positive, ratings are high, and I can't wait to get my hands on it. That was exactly the case here. When I first heard about this book, it sounded like something I would really enjoy, and then when Oprah picked it for her book club, I was even more excited. It was described as a novel that delves into the complex and often messy journey of marriage and self-discovery. I love books like this. I love when characters are forced to face their shit, they have to figure out how to move forward. So I added it to my book of the month box, was eager to jump in, and it started off pretty strong, but then it never seemed to really go anywhere. Now, I know I am in the minority here because a lot of people raved about this book. And let me say first that there were parts of this book that I really, really, really liked. There were just, in my opinion, too many very long sections that contributed nothing to the forward momentum of the story, and it really bothered me. So as the synopsis tells us, the story follows the lives of Jack and Elizabeth, an artistic couple who met in college and quickly fell in love, and years later find themselves navigating the challenges of parenthood and a failing marriage in Chicago. Jack and Elizabeth both grew up in pretty unhappy homes. Jack was poor and sickly. His parents were very religious, considered Jack to be slow because he didn't seem to thrive much as a kid. He escaped as soon as he could, enrolling in art school in Chicago, following in his older sister's footsteps. Elizabeth, on the other hand, was raised by very wealthy parents. Her father was a temperamental asshole, to say the least, and her mother wasn't very present in her life. The two found themselves living across from one another and secretly watch and pine for each other. One night, they meet face-to-face in a bar, they spend the night together, thus beginning their relationship. Years later, Jack and Elizabeth are married, they have a son, and they're trying to buy their forever home while also navigating the pitfalls of their approaching middle ages. The two have grown apart, and they'd love to figure out how or if they can save their marriage. That all sounded great and I did enjoy Jack and Elizabeth's story. They're both from my generation, they're flawed, they're relatable, and I found myself invested in their journey. As the story progresses, their flaws and insecurities are laid bare, and it becomes clear that they must confront their own personal demons in order to save their marriage. I was on board with that. However, while the characters were engaging, I found that the narrative often lost focus. There were long sections of the book that seemed to veer off on tangents that didn't contribute much to the overall story. I was eager to see Jack and Elizabeth's journey unfold, but instead I found myself being sidetracked by seemingly unrelated events. I didn't need the complete backstory on Elizabeth's family tree. I get that the author was trying to establish some history because, as we all know, we can carry generational trauma with us into our lives. But I feel like this could have been summarized in just a chapter. 
at most. Instead, it dragged on. And I certainly didn't need chapter upon chapter upon chapter of how the social media algorithm works. These meandering detours became frustrating after a while, and I understood, again, what the author was going for, but in no way did it advance the overall narrative of Jack and Elizabeth's personal struggles or their relationship with their families. As far as the background on the social media algorithm, I realized it was meant to give insight into the decline of Jack's relationship with his father and how his father got sucked into the misinformation often shared on social media. But again, at most, a chapter would have been fine. Now, despite these flaws, wellness still manages to offer moments of insight and introspection. The glimpses into Jack and Elizabeth's painful childhoods and their struggles with unfulfilled career ambitions were poignant and relatable. I love the relationship that Jack had with his older sister. It was beautiful and it was heartbreaking. And honestly, I wish the author would have given us more on Evelyn, his sister. Her character was a definite highlight in the book. Now, while it may not be a perfect read, Wellness still offers a thought-provoking exploration of the challenges of love, marriage, and personal growth. I did enjoy the psychology and science behind placebos and, in general, the way we're so obsessed with, well, wellness. But it wasn't enough to save this one for me. Had the book been about 200 pages shorter and had we not been sidetracked for long sections at a time, diving into things that really did nothing to propel the narrative, my rating likely would have been much higher. I was so frustrated by the time I finished reading that I was just ready for it to be over. In the end, the best I could do was give this one two and a half stars. Next, we'll take a look at Starling House by Alex E. Harrow. This book was first published on October 3rd, 2023 by Tor, and was another book of the month pick for me. It was also Risa's book club pick for October. The synopsis reads, Nobody in the town of Eden, Kentucky is old enough to remember the building of Starling House, but the stories have been passed down through the generations like old China. The hairdresser says it was the beginning of Eden's bad luck, the river water they can't drink, the coal dust they can't breathe, the cemetery that fills too fast. Opal has spent her life collecting stories about the house. One night, she meets its reclusive heir, Arthur Starling, and receives an invitation she can't refuse. But there are secrets and stories buried beneath Starling House, clamoring to escape and wreak havoc on the town. And even they might not be the biggest threat. Okay, confession time. I have copies of The Once and Future Witches and 10,000 Doors of January by this author hanging out on my shelves. They've been hanging out since they were released. I have no idea why I've not yet read them because they both sound great. The premise of this one definitely intrigued me, so I added it to my book of the month, and then when I saw that Reese picked it for her book club in October, I bumped it up my list. I guess this was the push that I needed to move the other two up on my TBR because I really, really like this one. It has a cast of endearing characters and a beautifully crafted story. Harrow's writing is nothing short of exquisite. Loved it. This book focuses on 20-something-year-old Opal, who was down on her luck and still mourning the loss of her mother a few years earlier. Her mother ran off the road, crashed into the river. Opal was with her but managed to escape the car. Her mother wasn't so lucky. After the accident, Opal fudged some documents so that she could take over as her younger brother, Jasper's guardian. The two live in a room at a hotel free of charge thanks to an agreement Opal's mother had with Bev, the owner of the hotel. For a while now, Opal has had vivid dreams of Starling House, a local house steeped in lore. 
It's your typical local haunted house on the surface, but when Opal has a run-in with Arthur Starling, the heir to the house, she's offered a job and soon finds herself working as a housekeeper. The money's great. It's exactly what she needs so that she can pay for her brother's tuition at a private school and help him get out of their dreadful hometown. It's not long, though, before Opal realizes that there may be something more to the stories about Starling House. And not only that, but whatever lurks on the grounds after dark might be hunting her. The story itself is a hauntingly beautiful exploration of the power of home and the lengths one would go to protect it. As sinister forces threaten to take over Starling House, Opal and Arthur are faced with a dire choice. Confront the buried secrets of the past or let Eden be consumed by nightmares. Harrow weaves together elements of mystery, suspense, and romance effortlessly, keeping readers on the edge of their seats and eagerly turning the pages. And yes, you heard me, this book does have a romance woven into it, and while I often find that when a romance is introduced, sometimes it takes over and becomes a main part of the book. That was not the case here, thankfully. One of the strongest aspects of Starling House is its characters. Opal, the main protagonist, is a strong-willed and determined young woman who finds herself drawn to the enigmatic Starling House. Opal's love for her brother Jasper shines through the pages as she takes on an unexpected job offer in hopes of freeing him from the confines of Eden. Opal's relatability and inner strength make her a character that readers will definitely root for. Alongside Opal is Arthur Starling, the last heir of Starling House. With a brooding demeanor and a haunted past, Arthur is the perfect complement to Opal's fiery spirit. The chemistry between the two is palpable, and their interactions are filled with tension and vulnerability. The rest of the cast is equally as strong. I loved Bev, the owner of the Garden of Eden Hotel. She has a tough exterior, but a heart of gold, and I love the relationship that she had with Opal. I also really like Charlotte, the local librarian, and Elizabeth Bain is a villain that I loved to hate. The setting of the novel, Eden, Kentucky, is brought to life through Harrow's rich and descriptive prose. The town itself becomes a character with its history and legends which added depth and texture to the story. The descriptions of Starling House are particularly vivid, making it easy for readers to feel the haunting presence of the house and understand why it holds such allure and danger. Harrow's writing style is gorgeous, as I mentioned earlier. Every sentence is carefully crafted, adding to the overall experience of the book. I found myself rereading several passages simply because they were so beautifully written. I would definitely recommend this one to anyone looking for a good southern gothic tale with a tinge of romance. I really enjoyed it. I gave it four and a quarter stars on my blog and story graph and four stars on Goodreads. And it's already break time. I'll be right back. Next, we'll take a look at The Curse of Penrith Hall by Jess Armstrong. I received an advanced copy of this book courtesy of the publisher through NetGalley in exchange for an honest review. The book will be published in the U.S. by Minotaur Books on December 5th, 2023. The synopsis reads, After the Great War, American heiress Ruby Vaughn made a life for herself running a rare bookstore alongside her octogenarian employer and housemate in Exeter. She's always avoided dwelling on the past, even before the war, but it always has a way of finding her. When Ruby is forced to deliver a box of books to a folk healer living deep in the Cornish countryside, she is brought back to the one place she swore she'd never return. 
A more sensible soul would have delivered the package and left without rehashing old wounds, but no one has ever accused Ruby of being sensible. Thus begins her visit to Penrith Hall. A foreboding fortress, Penrith Hall is home to Ruby's once dearest friend Tamsin and her husband Sir Edward Chenoweth. It's an unsettling place, and after a more unsettling evening, Ruby is eager to depart. But her plans change when Penrith's bells ring for the first time in 30 years. Edward is dead. He met a gruesome end in the orchard, and with his death brings whispers of a returned curse. It also brings Ruin Cavell, the person whose books brought her to Cornwall, the one the locals call a peller, the man they believe can break the curse. Ruby doesn't believe in curses, or pellers, but this is Cornwall, and to these villagers the curse is anything but lore, and they believe it will soon claim its next, Tamsin. To protect her friend, Ruby must work alongside the peller to find out what really happened in the orchard that night. So, I went into this one expecting a paranormal ghost story, but that's not what I got. Instead, this is more of a gothic murder mystery. It's not necessarily a bad thing, it was just unexpected, and I kept waiting for something ghost-like to happen, but it never did. So, fair warning, if you think this is a ghost story, change your expectations before reading it. The book is set in post-World War I England and follows Ruby Vaughn, a spirited American heiress who finds herself swept up in an alleged curse that is supposedly attached to Penrith Hall, the place where her dear friend Tamsin lives with her son and her bully of a husband, Edward. When Edward is found murdered, rumors begin to swirl that the curse of Penrith Hall has resurfaced and has taken another life. And while the book wasn't exactly what I expected, I did enjoy it. Armstrong's writing effortlessly transports the reader to the Cornish countryside. The descriptions of the landscapes, the characters, and the eerie atmosphere of Penrith Hall are all beautifully rendered, creating a vivid and immersive reading experience. The plot is filled with suspense and intrigue. What starts as a simple delivery of books quickly escalates into a hunt for the truth behind Edward's gruesome death and the alleged curse that looms over Penrith Hall. As Ruby and Ruin delve deeper into the mystery surrounding the orchard, the tension builds, keeping the reader hooked until the very end. The blend of historical events, whispers of witchcraft, and local folklore adds an extra layer of complexity to the story and makes it an engaging read. Now, as I alluded to earlier, despite initial expectations of a full-fledged ghost story, the supernatural elements in this novel are only hinted at. The legends of witchcraft and the curse did give the story a haunting atmosphere, but those seeking a more overtly paranormal experience like myself might be left wanting in that aspect. Now, character-wise, all the characters in this book are well-developed and engaging. Ruby, in particular, stands out as a likable and relatable protagonist. Her determination, her resilience, and curiosity make her a compelling and endearing character. The relationship she forms with the other characters, particularly her friendship with Tamsin, are heartfelt and richly portrayed. And while the majority of the characters are well-rounded and intriguing, my biggest gripe lies with the inconsistency of Ruin's character. I liked him, but there were times when he felt a little too mercurial. One minute he seemed fun and laid back, and then all of a sudden he seemed to be flying off the handle about something. It was difficult for me to get a good feel for him. I just, I wanted to like him more than I did. But overall, this was an enjoyable read that combines beautiful prose, compelling characters, and a captivating plot. While I had issues with Ruin's mercurial personality and wished for more paranormal elements, these things weren't enough to distract from the overall quality of the book. 
Fans of historical mysteries with a gothic atmosphere will likely enjoy this one. I gave it three stars. It's a good read, it's just not one that really grabbed me enough that I would want to revisit it. And we'll close out with My Thoughts on Rouge by Mona Awad. This book was first published by Simon & Schuster on September 12th, 2023, and was one of my Aardvark book club picks in October. The synopsis reads, For as long as she can remember, Belle has been insidiously obsessed with her skin and skincare videos. When her estranged mother, Noelle, mysteriously dies, Belle finds herself back in Southern California, dealing with her mother's considerable debts and grappling with lingering questions about her death. The stakes escalate when a strange woman in red appears at the funeral, offering a tantalizing clue about her mother's demise, followed by a cryptic video about a transformative spa experience. With the help of a pair of red shoes, Belle is lured into the barbed embrace of La Maison de Medus, the same lavish culty spa to which her mother was devoted. There, Belle discovers the frightening secret behind her and her mother's obsession with the mirror, and the great shimmering depths and demons that lurk on the other side of the glass. So, I have never read a book by this author, though I have a copy of Bunny, and I've heard a lot of good things about it. Everyone seemed to love it, they were chomping at the bit to get a copy of Rouge, so naturally I jumped on the bandwagon. When I saw it was a pick for Aardvark's book box in October, snagged a copy, and here we are. I finished reading it a couple of weeks ago, and I'm still sitting here wondering what the fuck I read, and I don't mean that in a bad way. This is a beautifully written but very bizarre novel that takes on the beauty industry and our society's obsession with eternal youth. The story revolves around Mirabelle, aka Belle, a dress shop clerk with a deep-seated fixation on her skin and skincare videos. Belle is part Egyptian and has a darker complexion. Growing up, she watched her white French mother obsess over her looks and her skin and secretly felt as though she was an outsider due to her darker complexion. When her estranged mother, Noelle, unexpectedly passes away, Belle finds herself thrust back into her troubled past. Dealing with her mother's debts and haunted by unanswered questions surrounding her death, Belle's world is further shaken when a mysterious woman dressed in red appears at the funeral, offering Belle a clue about what really happened to Noelle. Intrigued, Belle is drawn into the enigmatic world of a luxurious spa that her mother was a member of. As Belle becomes more transfixed with the exclusive and somewhat cultish spa, she begins to lose pieces of her memory. Words get jumbled, names become lost, and soon all Belle can think about is her next spa treatment. But how far can she go before she completely loses herself, or, like her mother, her life? The journey is a blend of fairy tale and horror, wrapped in a dark and surreal atmosphere. One of the things that really captivated me about this book was Awad's writing style. She weaves vivid descriptions, paints a rich and atmospheric backdrop for the story. Her words have an almost hypnotic quality. It draws the reader deeper into this twisted world she's created. I found myself completely immersed in Belle's journey, even though I kept asking myself what the hell was going on. This is a weird one, but it's also really well written. Awad's exploration of the beauty industry and our societal obsession with appearance is extremely thought-provoking. 
She crafts a narrative that serves as a scathing critique of the cult-like nature of the beauty industry, highlighting the danger of internalizing and obsessing over its standards. Through her characters, Awad forces readers to confront their own attitudes toward beauty and aging, causing us to question whether our desperate pursuit of youth is truly worth sacrificing our happiness and individuality. At its core, Rouge is a story about the deep longings we all possess, be it the longing for connection and acceptance, or the longing to feel worthy and beautiful. Awad skillfully peels back the layers of her characters, revealing their fears and insecurities and unfulfilled desires. This novel serves as a reminder that there is more to life than mere appearances, and that true happiness can only be found by embracing our authentic selves, as cliche as that might sound. Now, I say this while also admitting that I may or may not have read the book while sitting under my LED mask after applying my hyaluronic acid, vitamin C, collagen peptides, and retinol serums to my face. As I mentioned earlier, this is a weird one, but it's also one that you can't look away from and you can't stop thinking about after you've finished it. With its dark and surreal atmosphere, compelling characters, and twisty, unexpected storyline, it's a book that will stay with me for a while. I liked it well enough, I just don't know that I can say that I loved it. It definitely sucked me in, but I don't see myself wanting to read it again. That said, I do feel like this is one that you should experience, because love it or hate it, it's certainly a book you won't soon forget. I gave it three and a half stars. And that's it for this week. Be sure to join me next week when I discuss Terry Parlato's What Waits in the Woods, Rachel Harrison's Black Sheep, Megan Golden's The Night Swim, and Kia Abdullah's Perfectly Nice Neighbors. Hope you have an amazing week. I'll see you next time.